This morning, I want to jump into John chapter 21 today. If you have your Bible want to turn there, uh, you can go ahead and do so. I'm going to be putting some of these passages up on the screen, so it'll be easy to follow along with uh, right there. But John chapter 21, I want to take us to a passage uh, that's all about Peter's restoration. And uh, this is a passage that's going to take us immediately after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, uh, and to this time and in, in, in dealing with the, the restoration of Peter. And uh, what I want to do this week is, is a little bit more than just the evidence of the resurrection. This is something we do kind of like every single year at Easter. We talk about, hey, the fact of the empty, uh, the empty grave, the empty tomb. Uh, what do you do with some of the evidence? And I want to go beyond some of the evidence and some of the, the facts today. And I want to deal with what it looks like when the resurrection gets real. Right? I want to look at like, what it looks like when the resurrection goes beyond just mental assent and theological um, affirmation. Like I agree that this is true, but like, what it looks like when the resurrection of Jesus Christ gets real with you. When you move from this point of maybe unbelief, maybe you came in today and maybe you're doing something, a favor for somebody that you love, and, and this church thing and faith thing really isn't your deal. Um, when you move from unbelief into, okay, maybe I'm buying some of this thing, maybe I'm agreeing, okay, the, the, the tomb was empty, it obviously created quite a stir, and you're, becoming in, you're coming into a little bit of belief. When you move from that into the fact of like, okay, now I'm beginning to understand why we sing on a day like today. Now I'm beginning to understand like why we rejoice and why people are raising hands and why people are giving their lives for the cause of Jesus Christ. I want to know, like, has the resurrection become real to you? And so I want to look at Peter's restoration in John chapter 21 because I think this is going to show us a time that the resurrection actually became real to Peter. I think I've shared before many, many times. Um, I absolutely love Chip and Joe out in Waco. Uh, these are some of our heroes. And uh, uh, one of our favorite shows back in the day was Fixer Upper, right? We, we, we love them. I, right? It's the only reason we vacation in Waco. Now, like, like 10 years ago, people were not talking about, hey, we need to go stop off in Waco. Now, like everybody's like, hey, we got to go see the Magnolia. We got to pay like $10 for a cupcake and uh, buy shiplap and things that way. Like, they are the reason why we do those things, right? Um, one of the greatest shows I think came on TV a number of years back, The Fixer Upper. And uh, I don't, if you're not familiar with the show, I mean, it's, it's not a new concept, right? You're taking old, decrepit homes and you're turning them into something beautiful. But Chip and Joe had a dynamic to them and they were able to do it better than anybody else could do it, right? And so um, it obviously blew up. And uh, I mean, they, would, they had this neck of just, they, they're able to see beauty out of things that no one was able to see beauty in. Like they were able to go to antique stores and like junk uh, I, I mean, just piles of junk. They'd see an old rusty wheel and be like, that would look awesome in a kitchen. And they're right about it, right? Like, that's the thing. They're like, it does. I need that old rusty wheel. And then your wife is like, no, that doesn't work in our home. And you're like, oh, context is everything. But anyway, so you're like, okay, I, I, that's what they would do. Like they have this incredible ability to see beauty out of things that are not beautiful. And what I loved about the show is like they would take these hunks of junk and they'd turn them into just incredible things. One of my favorite ones is the Barn Dominium. I don't know if you guys remember this one, but literally they're looking out there and they're going, yes, that's the place I want to live. Like there's a family out there, like many acres, five acres, I think it was, and they're looking at this barn and they're going, yeah, we're going to turn this into a home, right? And, and Joanna's like, yeah, I think we could do that, right? So they bought that thing. I think it was $180,000, all the land, obviously, not just the barn, but they ended up selling it, or at least it was on the market recently, for $1.2 million. Right? Like that's what, that, that's the, their potential. That's what they're able to accomplish in, in, in this kind of a show. But what I loved about the thing is that it was inevitable that at the beginning of season one, if you go back and watch some of these episodes, there comes a point in time when they have no idea what Chip and Joe are able to do. 
right? And all the people that come, and Joe shows them. She's like, hey, you can choose from one of these three houses. And, of course, you know it's all staged. But anyway, like they found the house and everything. But it, there's always this point in time when they've got no idea how good she is. And they come into the home, and they're sitting there going, yeah, uh, those are laminates. We can't do that. And Joe's like, uh, I think I can handle laminates and stuff. But the people are always doubting him, right? You remember this, like, this is part of it. They're looking at this going like, there's no way you're going to be able to do, turn something beautiful out of this hunk of junk. Like, that's linoleum. I can't, like, shag carpet, popcorn. Like, I can't deal with any of this kind of thing. And she's going, yeah, I got that. But there's always this point in time in the show where they're sitting there in the living room. They're looking around and they're going, how in the world is she going to make something beautiful out of this? And the reason I bring that up is this this is where Peter is just after the resurrection. This is where Peter is just after the greatest failure in his life. He's looking around at the living room of his entire soul, and he's just sitting there going, going, how in the world can God create something beautiful out of me? How in the world can he take this junk, all of my failure? Like, this is the point of Peter's greatest failure. How in the world can God redeem this, restore this, make something beautiful out of the giant mess that I've created in my soul today? This is where Peter is immediately after the resurrection. He's not wondering about the facts, whether or not the tomb is empty. He's not wondering, hey, uh, okay, does this actually logically make any sense or anything like that? He's sitting there going, okay, does this make any sense for me? Is the resurrection have any reality? Is Is there any relevance in my life right here? If you don't remember Peter's story, like this is the the point of pain in Peter's life. There was no greater failure in his life than just before the resurrection, the night of Jesus' betrayal, just before the crucifixion. And you may remember some of this scene. This is the night of the Last Supper with Jesus' disciples. He's just finished telling them, hey, before this night goes and before it continues, like, you guys are all going to disperse and you're going to leave. And, and, he, and he tells them, like, he's like, this is not a conversation you like having with your friends, but he predicts what's about to take place, and they don't know exactly what's going on. But he sits there and he says, hey, you all will disperse. Luke's gospel is going to say, all the disciples will fall away. And so Peter jumps in, and you remember Peter. Peter's that guy in your friend group that makes all kinds of bold declarations and promises. He's the guy that, like, he's like, hey, Jesus is walking on water. I'm going to do the same thing. And so he jumps out on the water, and he actually walks for a second. Like, he's that guy that um, you can dare to do anything, and they're going to say yes. And so, like, you need him in his friend group so that things can be fun and stuff like that. That's Peter. He's the one that's, like, he's constantly speaking and getting ahead of himself and getting out there, making bold declarations. And this night is one of those nights. Jesus is saying, hey, before the night is done, all of you guys are going to walk away. And Peter's going, not me. All those fools, like, they can run away. They, like, they may leave you and desert you. It ain't going to be me. It's not how I, that's not how I work. And so Jesus looks at him, and you remember how this plays out. Jesus looks at him, and he says, okay, uh, Peter, actually, you're going to be the worst of them all. Like, even if everyone else in the world deserts you, Jesus, I'm never going to leave you. And Peter, Jesus says, um, before the night is over, the rooster is going to crow, and you will have denied me three different times. And you remember this is exactly how it plays out. Judas goes, and he betrays Jesus. And they take him away, and all the disciples, they scatter and Peter's hanging around a charcoal fire watching the thing to play out. And a little servant girl comes and says, hey, wait a second. I think I know you. Weren't you with Jesus? And Peter pipes up and he says, no, 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 no. That wasn't me. I, I don't know this man. I don't know what you're talking about. And they circle back around and go, no, no, no. I think I do. I, I know who you are. You, you're, you're, with one of, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And he's, no, no, no. You got the wrong guy. You don't know who I, I don't even know this man. Third time, no, no, you, I, I've seen you before. No, I have no idea who, the, who this person is. 
And the scriptures tell us when, Jesus, when Peter denied him the third time, the rooster began to crow. And it simply says this, as soon as that take, took place, Jesus made eyes with Peter. And Peter was so ashamed at what he had done, he just went, went away and he wept. I don't know if you've ever been in that place before, but it's an absolutely crippling place to be. In the pit of that massive failure in your life when you, you, you can't even look at Jesus in the eyes, so to speak. Like, it's an absolutely debilitating place to be. I'll never forget a number of years ago when I was doing singles ministry. Uh, we, were, we were beginning the worship service that night, and the music was going on, and I noticed this guy come in the back. And um, he was kind of, he would come in, and then he would step back out into the hallway. And then he would come in for a minute, and he would step back out into the hallway. And I noticed what was going on, and so I went out there to go talk with him. I was like, hey, man, you're welcome to come in. I love, you know, you can come sit next to me and all this kind of stuff. And, and uh, I'll never forget what he, he looked at me. He goes, man, I have no business being in a place like this. I am such a hypocrite. I have no business being in there. And I tried to talk with him. I tried to reason with him and try to assure him, no, 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 this is exactly where you need to be. You're loved, you're accepted here, all the different things. And we tried to talk and we tried to, but he just could not step in that door. And he goes, hey man, can you just give me a minute? I need to catch my breath because he could not come into the doors of this church. And so I come in, I'm like, yeah, man, I'll, I'll save you a spot. I'll give you a minute. And I go back in and I turn around and I look and he is hightailing it out that door and he leaves and he takes off that night. Like I'm telling you, like it's an, I don't know if you've been there before, but it's a debilitating place to be when you realize the depth of your sin, the depth of your hypocrisy, the depth of our rejection of God, the thing that I, that, that I promised I was never going to do it again. Like this is who I am and this is how I actually live. This is what I stand for and this is how it plays out. It's a debilitating place to be in the middle of that place where you can't even look at Jesus in the eyes. I'll never forget uh, that time for me. I've told the church about it a number of times in the past, but it was my freshman year in college. And I was coming back from my first semester of finals, and I came back home and was tired and exhausted, and I wanted uh, nothing to do with anybody. So I wanted to go to the, to the um, it was an easy for you corner mart at the front of our neighborhood. I wanted to rent a video. That's back in the days. You had to like, I think it was a VHS or something like that, but I wanted to go rent a movie, and I wanted to go lay on my couch and re retreat and just fall asleep and just unwind that afternoon. Went into the movie store, I rented a terrible movie, and I just came back out, and I saw this friend, or it wasn't a friend, he was a guy that I knew from high school, and he was there with a group of other people, and they were all kind of running around, messing up, and I, I kind of, I knew this guy from high school, he, he'd had to repeat a year later in high school, he was always in a lot of different trouble, and he was the kid that was picked on by everybody else in the school. I come back out to my car, and I'm about to take off and go home, and I notice that he's sitting on the, the front uh, steps of the store. And all of his friends were running down the street away from him. And he was sitting on these steps, and he just looked all dejected and, and worn out. And I'll never forget, clear as day, just the Holy Spirit coming and saying, okay, this is, this is the time, Aaron, go talk with this guy, offer him a ride, and this is the time to, to breathe life into him. And I'll just tell you that my freshman year in college was at the time that I was making all kinds of bold declarations to the Lord, where God was getting a hold of my heart more and more and making me kind of what I feel and what I felt was affirmation of moving into ministry, and, and there was all these victories and all these different kinds of things, and, and it was this clear as day moment, you need to go talk with this guy. And so I, I battled with it, and I was like, Lord, you don't understand, I'm tired, like I just got done with finals, and I came back out, and I was like, fine, okay, your will, not my will, be, be done. And I stepped out, and, and I was like, hey, um, Kelly, it's good to meet you, man, we, I, I knew you from high school, we started talking, I was like, I, can I give you a ride home? And uh, and he jumps in, he's like, yeah, man, that'd be great, I, I, that'd, be, that'd be wonderful. And he goes, wait, wait a second, um, 
I actually live 25 minutes the other direction. My house is like right behind the store. And, uh, and I go, oh, gosh. And he goes, hey, he goes, don't worry. He goes, I've already made a call. Somebody's on the way. They're coming to get me. Don't worry about it at all. And I sat there and I took that out. And I was like, are you sure? Are you sure you don't need a ride? And he's like, yeah, man, I don't, I, don't worry about it. They're on their way. They're going to come and get me. So I got back in my car and I went back home and watched the movie and fell asleep on the couch. And a week later, I'm reading his obituary in the newspaper about how depression ended up taking his life a little bit later on, a week later. I remember reading that, that paper that day and just this shame and the disappointment, the denial uh, was overbearing. I remember sitting there just crying out, just kind of saying, okay, Lord, um, like I, I was making all these promises I was sitting there saying, okay, God, I'm always going to be with you. I'll be your, I'll be your voice man. I'm going to serve you all of my days. Like, this is where Peter is. In, in the moment of denial, in the moment of his greatest failure, in the middle of his, God, I'm never going to do this, and wait, there I am right now. I happen to do the thing that, like, this is where Peter is. It's the moment of his greatest failure and shame. It's the thing that says, I can't even look at Jesus in the face and this is the place that Jesus comes and he says, no, 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 we need to have a conversation. And we need to have this time. This is the time when the resurrection gets real for Peter. Peter was there at the empty tomb. You remember this story. Mary Magdalene comes and discovers the tomb is empty, goes back and tells all the disciples, Peter's the one that outruns everybody else. He runs out there, discovers the facts of the tomb. The tomb is empty and he comes back and he doesn't fully understand what's going on. Uh, he's there the night of, uh, that Jesus makes his first appearance to the disciples. He's there the next week when he does it again with Doubting Thomas. Once again, he understands the facts of the resurrection. But this is the night that it's about to get all real. He picks it up in verse 1 in chapter 21, and it says, Afterwards, after Jesus made the appearance, after he, he made it as an, another appearance to the disciples again, after this time, Jesus appeared again to his disciples, this time by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, also called Didymus, the twin, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, who were James and John, and two other disciples who, I don't know why they didn't name their names right there, but they were all together. And Peter tells them, okay, I'm, I'm going to go fishing. And he invites them to go fishing with him. We don't know why he wants to go fishing. A lot of commentators speculate at this point in time, okay, maybe this is just his hobby. This is what you do to, to, to blow off a little bit of steam. Um, others understand, okay, this is what he did professionally. And so they speculate, okay, maybe this is Peter going off and he's trying to, uh, he's, he's trying to deal with um, some of the condemnation and shame, the voices that are going on kind of in his head about, hey, I denied him one moment and now he's alive and I was totally wrong in my entire thing. I don't know if you've ever done this before where you've ever tried to cope with that inner voice, whatever that thing may be in here through overworking um, or entertainment or something like that where you sit there and say, okay, like, I don't know a whole lot. Like, there's something going on in my head. I need to silence that voice. I need to silence that condemnation. And so I'm going to run to my work because my work is what I do well. My work is the thing that I know always works. Or maybe it's entertainment and I know, hey, this is the thing that's going to numb what I'm feeling inside right here. We don't know exactly the reason, but for whatever reason, it's a couple of weeks after the resurrection and there's something going on. And so he says, hey, guys, uh, we need to go fishing. I'm not out there doing the mission yet, not out there planting churches yet, but um, this is the place that Jesus finds him on that night. And so he makes the invitation and he says, okay. Um, they come and they say, Peter, we'll go with you. And it says that they go out, they get into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. And we know from the story, like, this is not normal 
behavior for professional fishermen. Like professional fishermen, they know how to catch fish. They know where to go. Like they don't come up empty-handed at the end of the night, right? Um, it's not the case for me. Like, that's not how it ever works out for me, right? But, but like professional fishermen, they know where to go. They know what to do. This is a very unusual occurrence. But we know that like, this is what Jesus does sometimes. Sometimes when he's trying to get your attention, sometimes when he's wanting you to say, hey, what I was previously doing, where I was previously going does not actually work. I want you to pay attention. Sometimes he's going to frustrate your plans. And he's going to come in and he's going to make really simple things that used to be simple pretty complicated. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in your life before, but like sometimes when he's saying, hey, I I want you to pay attention because I'm about to begin a brand new thing in your life, the simple becomes all of a sudden really, really complicated. And I think this is what's taking place in Peter's life. And it may be where some of you are today. The simple has become incredibly complicated. The things that became, that were normative are no longer normative. And this is what Jesus does. He did it in Jonah's life, not Jesus. God the Father in Jonah's life back in the day. You remember his story, right? He comes to Jonah and he says, hey, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. These are the most evil, wicked people on the planet. And Jonah hates that idea. He doesn't want them to get grace. And so he runs. And he gets on a ship and he thinks that he can outrun God somehow. He gets on this ship and, of course, it doesn't really work out very well. And so God sends a storm. And Jonah says, okay, I'm going to keep running. And so uh, Jonah decides to jump into the water. God sends a fish to swallow him and say, no, 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 you're going to continue to preach. Talk about complicated. This is what God does when he says, no, 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 I I want you to pay attention right now because I'm going to be doing a brand new thing. And I want you to see right here that this is what God does. This is what Jesus does. He comes and he is sovereign. He is in control. And he complicates matters so that he's going to get to a frustrated point and he's going to all of a sudden start paying attention to what's about to take place next. And so the story continues and it says, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. And so Jesus calls out to him. He says, friends, little boys is a little word. Little boys, right? Um, Haven't you any fish? And I love the disciples' response. They just go, no. (laughs) You can imagine the frustration. Whole night of fishing, they're like, no, we haven't caught any fish, right? And Jesus says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some, which has never worked in the history of the world, right? You've you've been out fishing before. You go out with the kids. Like, I I try this all the time because it never has ever worked. Nevertheless, they listened to Jesus and it says, when they did this, they were unable to hold in the net because of the large number of fish. And at this point in time, everything starts sounding really, really familiar to Peter because what's taking place is a recreation of that time three years prior when Jesus first called him to be a disciple of his and to follow him. And so Peter's paying attention to this story and he's going, hey, like, this sounds familiar. I've been down this path before. Like, I've, I've had that night. And Luke chapter 5 is going to tell us the same story, but it actually takes place at the same place, the Sea of Galilee. Don't know if it's the exact same location on the Sea of Galilee or not or anything like that, but this takes place at the Sea of Galilee. Three years prior, Peter's out there. They're having a day of fishing, and it's much like today. They actually don't catch anything, and they come back in, and Jesus takes his boat, wheels out a little bit longer, and he starts preaching to the people on the shore, gets finished with his preaching, and comes to Peter and says, hey, um, I know that it was a frustrating day of, uh, of fishing, and you caught nothing, but I want you to go back out, throw your nets on the other side of this boat, and you're gonna find some success. And so they trust him, they listen to him, and they go back out, and it's exactly what takes place. And the same scene, uh, that's the same thing that takes place back then. The nets are overflowing with fish. And I love what Luke says about what takes place. The nets are overflowing with fish. Peter realizes this miracle, and it says this. It says, when Peter looked up and realized who it was that was in his boat, he fell on his knees, and he says, get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinner. 
In other words, he's seeing this, this miracle and he's beginning to realize, hey, there's something different about this Jesus. Don't think that he fully understands the full story of what's about to take place, but he's understanding probably there's messianic implications. And he's sitting there saying, okay, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. And, and you remember what Jesus says. He says, don't be afraid, Peter, because from now on, you're with me. You follow me and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And so church, I don't want you to miss this, uh, this, this whole thing right here because in the middle of Peter's greatest failure, he recreates the scene of his original calling to remind him, Peter, hey, your life is not done. In the middle of that time, you don't want to look at me in the eyes anymore. That you want to run and hang out in the lobby. To the time, this, this thing that you're replaying in your mind over and over and over again. Jesus resets this scene and he recreates the entire thing so that Peter will know beyond a shadow of a doubt, hey, your life is not done. We are just beginning on our road together. The door of fellowship for you is still wide open and that your calling is still the same. Church, like this is Peter's miracle. Like everything about this scene is set up for him. This is not Nathaniel's fig tree or Matthew's tax collector booth or something like that. Like this whole thing is geared towards Peter. Peter's the fisherman. Peter, this is his boat that they're going out there. It's why John is going to look at this scene and he's going to realize that it's, Pete, that it's Jesus on the, on the shoreline. And he's going to scream out to him. He's going to say, Peter, it's the Lord. Like this whole thing is about Peter's restoration and Jesus pursuing Peter to make the resurrection become real to him. And he says, Peter, it's the Lord. In other words, like he's coming for you. Jesus is coming for you. Like, like this is what you've been waiting for. You've been wondering how he's going to respond to you. Now that he's resurrected and you've denied him, you're wondering what he's thinking about you. You're wondering how he feels towards you. You're wondering if you're okay. Like this thing is about you. And I love Peter's response here. It says in verse 7, it says that he just grabs his outer garments he jumps into the water and he starts swimming after Jesus. Like the dude just jumps in fully robed, fully clothed, sandals on, belt on. And just, I, I'm picturing like Forrest Gump right here. Remember this, like Lieutenant Dan. And the dude like jumps off the, the boat and he starts swimming in the ocean with the sharks and everything. He's like, I, I gotta be around Dan, right? Like this is what Peter's doing right here. Like he doesn't care about what's going on. Like the, t the text is gonna continue in verse eight and John's gonna say, the rest of us, we just followed in the boat. Like with the nets full of fish, we were only about 100 yards away from the shore. And I was like, like Peter just gets overwhelmed and he just dives in. Like, the, like that's what he, I, there's Jesus, I want to be with him. And the beauty of what, he, what, we, what we're seeing right here in this story is like, I think what Peter's showing us is like, it doesn't always have to be pretty. Like when you're responding to Jesus, you're coming to him, you've heard his call, you've heard him call your name, he's calling you in, your response to him doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be coat and tie. It doesn't have to be tucked in. It doesn't have to be beautiful and perfect or refined or all of these things. It simply needs to be real. Peter is responding to a call of Jesus. And he sees him on the shoreline. He says, I don't know how it's supposed to be done. My friends are doing one. It doesn't matter. I simply need to be around him. Never forget a number of years ago, uh, one of our friends now, part of our church, showed up at a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night fresh out of prison. And he comes in, we never met him before, and I start talking to him in the hallway, and some other men come around and befriend him, and come to find out that he was in prison for a number of months, and, uh, and during that time, God got a hold of his life. He did one of these uh, promises to the Lord, and he says, you know, I came to understand who he is, and, and I made a bunch of promises, and I promised that when I got out, I'd be following him for the rest of my days. And he goes, I don't even know what that means, and I don't even fully understand really who he is, and I don't understand any of these things, but I, I saw the sign. I saw that there was a prayer meeting, and so I decided to show up, and so here I am. 
And I'll tell you that years later, this man is now walking with Jesus in fellowship, in community, and people have come around and supported and loved and, and, and given everything and stuff, and he's begun walking with Jesus, but it all began when he decided to jump out of the boat and start flailing his arms, just rushing to Jesus, going, I don't know how it's supposed to go. I don't even understand the language that you guys speak. I don't understand why you guys raise hands. I don't understand so many things about this. But what Peter's showing us right here is none of that stuff matters if how you come to him is simply real. And it's the invitation that's on the table today. You hear his voice calling to you. Some of you, like, that's what you woke up with today. Like, you're not here because you wanted to come to church. You're not here because, like, this is your thing or anything like that. Yet you knew that there's something that was calling you in. Maybe it was a relative or someone that you love. But you may be here today, and what he's showing us right here, it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be all buttoned up. It needs to be real, coming to him exactly as he is. And I want you to see how Jesus responds to this kind of response from Peter. Because he doesn't give him the stiff arm, it says in verse 9, Jesus is on the side, and it says that he's got a fire of burning coals there with fish already on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. In other words, Jesus is already there cooking, and he's like, yeah, you can bring some of your fish. I don't need it, right? But you can bring it anyway. And so it says in verse 11, Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. You know what 153 means? No idea. Um, It's just there. The specifics of what's taking place. I think fishermen keep counting their fish, right? They, make, they just write that down. And it says, even though he brings that in, even with so many, the net was not torn. And then Jesus says to them, come and let's have breakfast. Church, who do you make breakfast for in your life? Do you do that for people that deny you and that reject you and hurt you and walk away from you? We were telling this story to Caleb earlier in the week, and Kat asked them the question. They said, how do you feel when your friends make fun of you, betray you, stab you in the back? He's like, I, I don't want anything to do with them. I, he's like, that hurts my feelings. I don't want to be around him and stuff. He's like, that's terrible. She goes, what does Jesus do? And he looks at the test and he goes, he made them breakfast? It's not normative, is it? This is what you do for friends and family. And this is how Jesus is looking at Peter in the middle of his pain, in the middle of his betrayal, in the middle of his greatest failure as an adult man, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Never forget a little while ago, I was watching a Netflix documentary by George Clooney, and he was talking about his religious upbringing and the amount of religious shame that he lived in as a child. And he says to deal with a lot of the shame, he would often put gravel inside of his shoes He would climb to the top of his bunk bed and he would jump off repeatedly until his feet were cut open and he would start bleeding because he thought that that's what God demanded as penance for his sin. And meanwhile, here's Jesus and Peter, his friend, and the greatest denial that he's ever had and the greatest failure, the greatest pain. And Jesus is out here saying, come, let's have breakfast together. And so they sit down together, and it says that when they finished eating, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, he's going full name here. This is what parents do. This is what friends do. They say, hey, I want you to pay attention, right? Aaron Callahan Armstrong. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter says, yes, Jesus, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. 
Once again, the third time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And at this point in time, like Peter starts understanding like really what's going on. He starts getting upset. And he starts understanding that, again, Jesus is recreating this entire scene. He's bringing him back to the time of his betrayal. I mean, the night of, Jesus, of Peter's betrayal, it took place around a charcoal fire. And Peter's declaration of the Last Supper was, even if all of these jokers over here, even if all these disciples, if they deny you, I never will. And so Jesus comes and asks him, hey, Peter, do you love me more than these over here? Peter denies him out loud three times, so Jesus asks him the same question three different times. Peter, do you love me? What's he doing with all of this? Turns out, why is he making him go back to that place of pain? Is he just trying to shame him a little bit more? Is he trying to pile on the burden or anything like that? Like, of course not. He's bringing him to his place of pain in order to free him from his shame. Like, this is what God does. He comes and he says, okay, I'm going to deal with you in the honesty and in the realness of what that moment is, the thing that's actually keeping you from me, the thing that's making you wake up and not want to spend time with me, the thing that's making you stay home and not ever want to come and be a part of a fellowship, the thing that's making you and keeping you from being able to sing and worship me, whatever that thing may be, I want you to go back to this place and I'm going to deal with that place of pain in a very real and a very honest way that you can be delivered from the shame of this entire thing. Like this is what he's doing. Like Proverbs is going to say, people who conceal their sin and refuse to deal with their past, they will not prosper. However, if you confess it, and you turn from it, they will receive mercy. In other words, like if you want to have mercy and healing in a healthy future, we've got to be willing to deal with some of the pain of the past. And so Jesus is coming back there and he's saying, no, 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 we're not going to avoid it. Think about this. Like how, are, how is restoration taking place in relationships that you love today? Like how does that take, is it, is it by dealing, is it by glossing over the pain of the past and, or is it by going in there and dealing with it honestly? I mean, do, do you restore and reconcile with people that you love by sitting there saying, okay, I, I told you I was sorry. I'm, I, I told you I'm, I was, deal with it. Like, I already said it, bye. Like, do, does that reconcile anything or is it actually taking place when you come and say, you're right. Like, that thing that we're talking about right here, that was real. And I can see where that hurts you. Like, uh, is reconciliation take place any other way than by dealing with the past honestly? I mean, this is what he's talking about right here. James is going to say, confess your sins and pray with one another that you can be healed. In other words, like you don't just do it for other people's sake. You do it for your sake that you can be healed, that you can be set free, that there could be mercy and a future for you. This is what Jesus is doing right here. He's not entering into this place in order to hurt Peter further. He's entering into this place so that Peter could be healed and restored and redeemed from this entire thing. I mean, if he wanted to hurt Peter more and more, why does he keep pointing him to the future? This entire time, he just keeps saying, he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, I, you know that I love you. And then he says, feed my lambs. And Peter's sitting there going, like, wait, you're not done with me? You've got a future, you've got an assignment for me? I, like I'm useful for your purposes still? Like, don't you, like I, I denied you. And Jesus is going, I, I know that you denied me, but Peter, like, do you love me? I'm not asking if you know the facts of the resurrection. I want to know one-on-one -on -one right here, do you love me? And he's going to take care of my sheep. You're, I'm not done with you. I have a future for you. I have a purpose for you. And Peter's going, no, 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 no. I ran from you, though. I ran from you. And he goes, no, 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 Peter, you're not hearing me. Do you love me? You know that I love you, Lord. Then feed my sheep over and over and over again. Jesus is telling him, I'm not done with you. I know that's hard to believe. I know that that's not how the world operates. 
I know that grace is so far away from anything that you see in your natural human relationships here, but like I'm not done with you. And church officers say, some of you need to hear that today. He's not done with you. If you're hearing his voice today, he's not done with you. The same calling that you had back then if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is the same calling you can still have today. Like, you're not defined by your greatest failure. He's showing us in Peter's restoration right here. Like, you can deny him three times, you can deny him a hundred times, and Jesus is going to come back and he's going to say, okay, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not denial, not divorce, not the circumstances that led to your divorce, not addiction, not denial, not running away from him, not rebellion, not rejection, not whatever's on your rap sheet, because my grace is sufficient once and for all. Peter, the denial was terrible, yes. Let's not do that, like, it's terrible. There's no denying that, but you have to understand there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Church, this is what the resurrection means. More than the facts, more than the evidence of the empty tomb, this is the reality of the, of the resurrected Jesus Christ. You could be restored to right relationship with him. You can have shame exploding in your life, and it will be eradicated when you come to him and you allow him access into your soul so that he can wash you clean and make you brand new. The failures of your past do not have to define you. Church, this is the beauty of the resurrected Jesus Christ. He did not just walk out of a tomb. He conquered sin and death, which is more than just forgiveness. It is restoration of life. It is renewed fellowship. It is freedom from running and shame. Church, has it ever become real to you? I'm not asking about evidence. I'm not asking, do you believe it? I'm not asking today, what do you do with the empty tomb? I'm asking, when did it ever become real to you? I'm asking if you've had that conversation with Jesus where you've given him access to the greatest failures of your life and you've looked back in your past at those pain moments and you said, Jesus, come in here. And you've listened to his words repeated in your head more than the voices of accusation and condemnation. And you've listened to those questions. Aaron, do you love me? Yeah, you know that I love you. Go feed my sheep. Have you given him access into your soul to bring healing and restoration so that you're not just hanging out in the lobby and afraid to come to the place that is actually going to give you life to the God who's already given you grace, to the God who's already extended his mercy to you, made it available to you, if you will come by faith and say, God, I'm giving you access through Jesus, come and work inside of me. Has it ever become real to you? I'll never forget when it became real. I ask that question to worship people all the time. I ask it to ministers quite a bit. Mine was my freshman year, right after that time that I just told you about in my introduction. The overwhelming shame and the failures and the God, how in the world are you gonna use someone so broken like me? It was 1998 and I remember sitting in Todd Burnett who was our, youthful, our youth pastor um, at Northwest Bible Church in Spring, Texas. I remember sitting in his office lamenting over this thing. He'd walked with me through my calling. He'd walked with me through all these assurances and all these different things. And I sat there that day doubting everything and I remember sitting in his office and he looked at me and he goes, Aaron, you're going to be talking about grace for the rest of your life. You better figure out if you believe it. In 
And some of you know the hard, how difficult it is to forgive yourself. Some of you know how difficult that is. He sat there and he opened up the word of God and he brought me to Peter's restoration. And we walked through some of these questions. And just like many pastors do, he said, you need to get personal. You need to step into these shoes and put yourself in Peter's place. Aaron, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Then go and feed my sheep. He's not done with you, man. He's not done with you. Remember talking with a group of friends a little while ago, asking, when did the resurrection become real to you? Beyond just mental assent, beyond just, hey, that's the box that I check on my, on my form. And like, when did it become real to you? Remember people talking about, I mean, it was one of the most sober times. I've never had many groups where men sit around and they actually shed tears because of the beauty of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But one man rose up and he said, it was during my divorce that the resurrection became real. It was during the shame of going through that thing I never thought would take place. I never thought would happen. It was in the middle of that thing when I had broken promise after promise after promise that Jesus came in after time. He moved in my soul and he convinced me of the enormity of his grace and of his mercy. And he wooed me in and I found life in him again. Another person came and talked about it was in the middle of my addiction battle. When I kept promising, this is the last time, God, this is the last time. And then it wasn't the last time. And then I did it again, and that wasn't the last time either. And then I, I did it again, and, and like that wasn't the last time either. And he goes, in the middle of that place, God's resurrection, the beauty of Christ's resurrection in the empty tomb, what grace means, what mercy and forgiveness and restoration looks like, being made right and having a conscious wiped clean by the tarnishment of sin, like that became real in that moment. Other people talked about how I need this reality every single day because the truth of the matter is I cannot give myself the same grace that God has given me. And some of you, you know that, right? We don't have any concept for this. Like we don't, we have a threshold with one another. There are things that you can do that are going to make humans and people and friends and loved ones run away. And it's just not how it is with God and his mercy and with his grace. I don't know if you've ever heard Johnny Cash's story before. I love his testimony. I think it's just absolutely beautiful. I was always amazed and I always asked the question myself, why is, why is he up there leading worship of Billy Graham crusades, Right? But if you know Johnny Cash, I mean, just one of the, I think it's one of the most incredible testimonies, but he tells his own story. Uh, if you know him, obviously famous musician, one of the greatest um, that our world's ever known. And um, he's very honest about his story, but he talks about getting carried away in addiction, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, depression, and all the, the downward spiral of all of that. And he talks about this time where it got really, really, really dark, and he thought it was all finished, and he decided that he was done. And so he goes into the mountains behind his ranch, and he goes and he finds a cave. And in the middle, he was drunk. and he, he was controlled by substances and all these things. He didn't understand what he was doing. He had a little bit of a flashlight left. And he goes, I started wandering into the cave, darker, further and further and further into this cave. His flashlight goes out. He keeps going until he can't go any further. He, closes, he, he, he collapses on the ground, curls up into a ball, and he thinks this is it. And somehow in the middle of the night or whatever it was, he was woken up and he says, this is the time that I felt like God came to me in the middle of that place, in the middle of that shame, and he woke me up somehow, and he says, get up, Johnny, I'm not finished with you. I didn't want to get up, he talks about, and he says, I didn't want to do it, but he goes, I got up, and somehow I started stumbling around. I couldn't even see my own hand in front of my face. My flashlight was done. I made it to the front of the cave, 
My friends helped me get into recovery. I got sober. And he goes, that's when I found a Billy Graham crusade. And in the middle of that place, God called me, and I understood grace for the first time. Shortly after that, Billy came, and he invited him to come and start leading worship for his crusades. And if you remember these things, like, everybody was wondering, like, why are you having Johnny Cash lead worship at your crusades? Don't you understand? He's not a worship leader. Don't you understand his past? Don't you understand how far he is broken? Don't you understand his story? And I love what Billy had to say about Johnny, but he always says this. He goes, with Johnny, I know that grace is real. I know that it's real with Johnny. Johnny knows the grace that I'm hoping everyone in the world gets to know. Church, I don't know what your story is. I don't know why you decided to come today. I don't know what's going on this afternoon. I don't know what the thing may be, if there is anything in your life that is making you feel like, hey, I need to stay in the foyer today. I need to stay out there. And as you hear the voice of Jesus wooing you into relationship with him, whatever that thing is, is saying, hey, you don't belong in that sanctuary. We are all on the exact same page, sinners before a holy God, marked by his grace, singing of his praises and his glory, Because there's nothing glorious in and of ourselves, but in the middle of that place, God fixed his love upon you and me. It's why he sent his one and only son, Jesus. To come and to live the sinless, perfect life. You couldn't live. I couldn't live it. I failed. I made promise after promise and not lived up to it. And Jesus still makes breakfast for you. And he calls you in. Peter, this one's about you, bro. And he makes it personal. And he willingly went to the cross to suffer and to bleed and to die as a substitute for you, not as an example for how to live sacrificially, but because that's what our sin deserves. It deserves separation from God, and so God sent Jesus to come and to take the penalty of our sins upon himself. And three days later, he literally and physically walked out of that tomb alive. He conquered sin and death, not metaphorically, literally. He conquered sin and death that your shame can be exploded, that you can draw near to God now and for all of eternity. And he makes this incredible gift available to you and me. If you will simply come to him, you will confess by faith, Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. The word of God assures us you will be Saved, And if you are found in Christ, Jesus can come and explode that place of shame inside of your heart and you can be free and live with him now and for all of eternity. I don't know what you came in here with. I know it's not too big enough for his grace. I know it is not big enough for his grace. Story wraps up and I love the final way that it wraps up. He tells Peter, hey, this is how you're gonna die. (laughs) It's a great conversation, right? This is how you're going to die. And then he simply says this. He says, follow me, Peter. Remember that original calling I had for you three years prior? Same thing. It still applies today. You follow me. And Peter starts looking at John. And you remember this? He says, what about that guy over there? What about him? Like, does he need to do this? What about him? And he's like, no, 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 Peter. I, I, you're missing the point. Just, just follow me. And I would submit to you that's the invitation that's on the table for you today. If you hear his voice, Jesus is calling you in to have breakfast with him. And the offer is just come and follow me. We'll have fellowship. I will restore this. I will give you grace. I will give you mercy. 
I will give you healing. I will give you life now and for all of eternity. Father God, we love you. We praise you this day. For the person that came in today like Peter, wondering how you feel, Father, I pray that they would see your invitation of mercy and grace and breakfast. That today they would take you up on it. That today the resurrection would move beyond facts so that it would become personal, that it would become real. That they would hear you calling their name individually, meeting with them, and destroying whatever that thing is that's been keeping them from you. God, I pray that you would do that right now in Jesus' name. And if you're listening and that is you, the Bible says if you will come to him in faith, say, Jesus, I accept you. I am asking you to come and to do that. He will move in mighty and powerful and powerful ways. Father, would you come and do that right now? All for your praise, all for your glory. God, we love you. We thank you this day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.